Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to Trashy Divorces, everybody's favorite good podcast about bad relationships. Stacy, you got the first part of a genuine two-parter going today, don't you? I do. People of a certain age will remember astronomer and public science guy Carl Sagan, particularly for his 1980 TV series Cosmos. He was a big player in space science during a time when the U.S. was very focused on exploration and made himself a very prominent voice in all of that. But he was also a difficult and arrogant man, especially as a younger guy, and today we're going to talk about his doting mother's influence on him, and his fairly terrible first marriage. There's a lot of imago in this story. Indeed. This weekend, we'll be back with his ultimately fairly terrible second marriage, as well as his third, which seems to have gone a little better. But before we do, Alicia, is that a magic mirror I spy through my telescope? The stars won't lead you wrong, Stacy. It certainly is. We want to give a huge, big, glorious shout out to our newest supporters over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces who are enjoying dumpster dives, bonus divorce stories, Zoom hangouts, and a whole lot more. Thanks so much to Sherry C., Morgan K., John M., Lindsay L., Organized Wallflower, I wish I could be, Rachel P.Y., Judandi B., Aaron M., and holy cats, our newest super supporter, Carrie A. Big thanks to all of y'all for joining us on Patreon. Big thanks to y'all for coming back to listen today. Alicia, if we're going to launch this rocket, what do we need to do? We need to go, go, go. Stacy, you do so much science here in our Trashy Divorces headquarters. I didn't know scientists could be trashy. Yes, apparently scientists can be quite, quite trashy. As we will see with the life of noted astronomer, planetary scientist, cosmologist, and yet not a cosmetologist. So huh. how about that? Can't mm-hmm. do everything. Can you, Carl Sagan? Also an astrophysicist, astrobiologist, and of course a science communicator. Well, sure. Folks of a certain age will remember him well. Alicia Carl Sagan was complicated, as is his legacy. Certainly he was renowned for his intelligence, and he was definitely one of the most famous scientists of the 20th century, although there's a lot of competition. Albert Einstein, Robert Oppenheimer, Watson and Crick. I mean, there's a a lot of competition for that, but he was certainly up there, and particularly in this like period of like the 70s through the 90s, he probably was the person people thought of when they thought of a, a scientist or an astronomer. Still, he was often criticized for seeking fame, for being a bit of a star chaser in multiple ways. Because he's an astronomer. See, okay. uh Some of his colleagues believed that his fame really exceeded his talents as a scientist, and maybe it was a little little overrated. Uh Yeah. Whatever the truth is on the fame versus scientific talent, what Carl Sagan is especially responsible for 
is sparking curiosity and wonder in the minds of the public. In his obituary, the then president of the National Academy of Sciences, Bruce Albert, said, Carl Sagan, more than any contemporary scientist I can think of, knew what it takes to stir passion within the public when it comes to the wonder and importance of science. I'm not sure we would have a Neil deGrasse Tyson today as such a prominent figure without Carl Sagan having kind of preceded him in the public science communicator role. That makes sense. Throughout his career, which was quite illustrious, Carl Sagan won the Pulitzer Prize, two NASA medals for exceptional scientific achievement, the John F. Kennedy Astronautics Award, the Public Welfare Medal from the National Academy of Sciences, and he was inducted into the International Space Hall of Fame. Wow. In addition to that, he was a prolific writer, and of course his show Cosmos on television was just a big gateway for many people, kids in particular, to come to love science. His personal life, however, and I think that you will agree with me by the end of the story, pretty trashy. And that's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. Old Carl was married three times. He was the father of five children. His first two marriages ended in bitter divorces, and he spent a large number of years estranged from his earlier children. Great start so far. Right. But Carl finally found, you know... A remarkable love story toward the end of his life and perhaps was able to make some amends for his earlier cold and unfeeling and uh, just anyway, we'll get into it. Let's get Carl Sagan born. Carl Edward Sagan was born on November 9th, 1934 in Brooklyn, New York. He was the first child of parents Sam and Rachel. He would later have a younger sister, Carol. The Sagans were a middle-class Jewish family. His father was a garment factory manager. And in the accounts of Carl's childhood, it appears that what his mother's occupation was, was adoring her son. Oh. Right, like, parents are not supposed to have favorites. Well, Rachel, his mother, had a favorite, and it was Carl. Uh Uh-oh. And it was decidedly not his younger sister. In Kay Davidson's book, Carl Sagan, A Life, he quotes Peter Pesch, the best man at Carl's first wedding. Pesch said about Rachel and Carl's relationship, Rachel the mom, quote, she worshipped the ground he floated above. Oh, Lord. He could do no wrong. That's got to be a good start in life. A mother that thinks you are the sun, the moon, and the earth. Yeah, there's a lot of imago. This is like way up your alley, Alicia. No, I'm just, I feel bad for wife number one. There's only so far Mm. that you're going to be successful if you Mm -hmm. got a mama Mm -hmm. like that. Trashy mamas. Sure. So while that does indeed sound like a pretty cush way to come into the world, Rachel's adoration of Carl seems to have strongly impacted every aspect of him and his future relationships Mostly in negative ways. Yikes. His first wife, the biologist, later known as Lynn Margulis, said, There's no way of understanding him without understanding her very well. His mother made him so dependent on this one relationship, on her. He was worthy of every attention, all the time, every need was always filled. 
definitely setting her son up for healthy adult relationships. Yeah, (laughs) we could call it not that at all. Speaking of having a favorite, Rachel's love and adoration of Carl certainly did not extend to Carol Carey, his younger sister. She remembers, I always had a deep voice and she, my mother would imitate it, not in a pleasant way, just in a way that wiped me out emotionally. It was devastating. I can never remember her hugging me. How sad. While you're watching your brother be catered to in every way. 24-7. This is terrible. Uh Carl's parents balanced each other out a little bit. His mom was charismatic, feisty, quick-witted, and quick-tempered, although her daughter may not have known many of those things about her. His father was warm, logical, and steady. They both believed very deeply in Carl's potential and his ability to be great. And I'm sure mom told him every day. Every minute of every day. In 1939, Carl's parents took him to the World's Fair, and it was a pivotal moment in his life. The World's Fair presented the world of tomorrow, which made an enormous impression on the mind of young Carl Sagan. There were robots, there were air conditioners, and all these technologies that were either new or not quite there yet at the time, but all of which would make life easier and promised a better, simpler future, a happier time. He later recounted the Futurama exhibit where participants flew over a moving map of the America of tomorrow, saying, It showed beautiful highways and clover leaves and little General Motors cars all carrying people to skyscrapers, buildings with lovely spires, flying buttresses, and it looked great. Looking back on the experience, though, Carl noted that he had absorbed this extremely technocratic idea in a very uncritical way. I mean, he was a kid. He remembered the presentation of the world of tomorrow as, quote, sleek, clean, streamlined, and as far as I could tell, without a trace of poor people. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In another exhibit, a flashlight illuminated a photoelectric cell creating a crackling sound. In another, there was a sound wave from a tuning fork registering as a sine wave on an oscilloscope. He said, plainly, the world held wonders of a kind I had never guessed. How could a tone become a picture and light become a noise? Science. Science! Mm -hmm. Although Carl was enchanted by the magic that science promised him after visiting the World's Fair, his childhood was also set against the reality of World War II and the Holocaust. He, of course, was aware of the war, but his mother went out of her way to make sure he never had to hear much about it, even though the family had relatives who died in Europe. Oh, my God. Who died in the Holocaust. So Carl's sister, Carrie, said, Above all, she, Rachel, wanted to protect Carl from the horrors of the war. It was something that we never talked about, essentially, that I can recall, even though we had relatives who were slaughtered. Many people who grew up with Carl remember him as a complex person, even as a child. His lifelong friend, Robert Gritz, said, He kept his nose in the air. He was aloof. Standoffish is the best description. Head in the clouds. I think his mother inculcated in him an idea that they were somehow better than the riffraff in the street. I could speak to him about things I couldn't speak about to my other friends. My relationship with my other friends was almost one-dimensional. There was no intellectual or cultural interaction. But with Carl, it was on different levels. This is so much a mago to have to deal with. Just wait. I mean, just, <laughs> just wait. When he was very young, Carl became fascinated by the sky and astronomy. 
He was very eager to learn more. He remembered asking his family and friends, like, what are the stars? And he said he was given answers like, they're lights in the sky, kid. (laughs) This obviously did not satisfy baby Carl Sagan's curiosity, so his mom took him to the library and they got a book about stars. In the book, he learned that stars are suns that are very far away. He recalls learning this as a quote, pivotal moment and almost spiritual experience. According to Robert Gritz, by the time he and Carl were about seven, they discovered that by holding two lenses in the right position, they could see the craters on the moon and they could study the red colors of Mars, which is an accomplishment. When he was eight years old, Carl decided that extraterrestrials existed and became a passionate science fiction reader. Good choice. As a teenager, he shocked those dining in the same restaurant at him when he announced loudly, I tell you, Jesus Christ was an extraterrestrial. (laughs) More prime rib, please. (laughs) So as you can imagine, this kid with this mind was quite frustrated by ordinary schooling. As he was moving into high school... His parents were told that they really should send him off to the school for gifted children, but they didn't. It turns out the gifted school was very, very expensive, and that's probably why Carl Sagan was denied that leg up. It didn't really hold him back. Seems like no. So at school, probably not particularly athletically minded, he was also a little bit athletically minded because he became the basketball team's scorekeeper and statistician. Oh, Perfect. Athletically minded, (laughs) maybe not bodied. Um, He would travel on the bus with the team and the cheerleaders. And one of his high school classmates who was a cheerleader, Deborah Shalaber, didn't feel like she had much in common with the other cheerleaders. So she would sit with Carl on the bus for long rides to out-of-town games. These two were both straight-A students. They got along well. Carl seemed to respect her. Deborah would say, we were in the same math class. I was the only girl. He was impressed, A, that there was a girl in the class, and B, that there was someone that could get the same grades he could get. Although they got along, she would tell Davidson, arrogant is a good way to describe him. I was almost going to say pompous. (laughs) But I'll go with arrogant. On the bus rides, they would sit together and talk about books or talk about class or whatever, but Deborah said, Even then, his favorite subject was astronomy, and he could be a bit boorish about it. She says he was so gung-ho about his desire to learn astronomy. His eyes lit up when he would start to talk about this. It went over like a lead balloon with me, but it was something to let him talk about when we were on the bus for a long ride. An edition of his high school newspaper included an article that opened, If you wish to gain information concerning anything... Go to Carl Sagan. (laughs) He is Noah Webster, Einstein, and a walking encyclopedia all rolled into one. And it added, his ambition is to become a research astronomer. He sounds like an insufferable twat. Yeah, well, he was voted most likely to succeed. Sure. So he graduates from high school in 51, headed to the University of Chicago. Obviously, it didn't take long for him to begin making a name for himself at school. With that intellect and that curiosity, he joined the Astronomy Society and spent a lot of his time in the campus observatory. He earned his first bachelor's degree after just three years. This had 
general and specific honors attached to it. He earned a second bachelor's degree the following year, wow. 1955. In 1956, he earned a master's degree in physics as well. He had applied and been accepted to the University of Chicago's astronomy program to earn his PhD, started classes in 56. But that was not all that Carl Sagan was up to. Oh, what else is he up this to? this period. He had fallen in love. I was about to say, he doesn't have time for much else. You'd think. But... You'd think. And yet, dapper ladies man. Carl Sagan. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. And now is probably a good time to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to meet Carl Sagan's lovely, wonderful first wife. See you on the flip. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Carl Sagan and Lynn Alexander, the future Lynn Margulis, who is herself or was herself a highly esteemed biologist in her career. They first met in 1955 when she was only 16 years old. This was on a staircase in the math building there at U, she, U Chicago. I, okay. She'd graduated from high school early and was admitted to the University of Chicago at the age of 14. What? Yes. Holy cats. He was 20 when she met him, and she described him this way. Tall, handsome, with a shock of brown-black hair, and exceedingly articulate. I was a scientific ignoramus. Carl, and especially his gift of gab, fascinated me. Already he seemed to be a polished professional. From our first meeting, he shared with me, and with anyone else who would listen his keen understanding of the vastness of time and space. His love for science was contagious. Lynn, of course, was also brilliant. She was likable. She was attractive. One of Carl's college friends noted, quote, she was marvelous, interested in ideas, concepts, completely open-minded, tolerant, excited, loved to talk. She was so intense. She still is very perceptive and very warm, with an absolutely first-rate mind, which makes a terrific combination, a huge heart, and a terrific intelligence. Well, Lynn sounds just perfectly lovely. Yep. How is Carl going to mess her up? Oh, boy. he I mean, he's not, actually. He just I think he just delays her greatness a bit, but we'll get there. Another friend mentioned that uh, Lynn was considered quite the catch on campus, and a lot of the guys in their group were interested in her saying she knocked the socks off a lot of guys. Anyway, she was exceptionally smart. She was interested in genetics and heredity. Lynn Margulis, of course, would go on to be a revered evolutionary biologist. She's particularly known for advancing the theory of symbiosis, whereas like cellular structures are actually formerly bacteria that have kind of collaboratively joined the the cell. So the mitochondria was once an independent entity and became incorporated into the cell for the betterment of both. This is sort of an affront to Darwinists who see everything in terms of competition. She instead posited like, no, no, collaboration is actually a big part of what drives life on earth. She was also a big proponent of the Gaia hypothesis, which she helped develop with another researcher that 
sort of suggests that the Earth is a complex, self-regulating system and that life on Earth and its interactions with like the inorganic parts of Earth are both part of those feedback loops, etc. I think this informs a lot of climate change modeling. Ah, okay. All right, so Nobel Prize-winning physicist Sheldon Glashow once said, Lynn is possibly Sagan's greatest contribution to science. I think that's a bunch of garbage, and we're going to see why in a few minutes. Oh, goody. So Carl was in his PhD program, and he was able to study at the McDonald Observatory in Fort Davis, Texas, with Dutch astronomer Gerard Cooper. He's considered to be the father of modern planetary science. The Cooper Belt, I believe, is named after him. The two spent the summer of 1956 studying together and discussing the possibility of extraterrestrial life. It's a long-running interest of Carl Sagan's. There were troubles brewing back home with his romantic relationship with Lynn. While he was in Texas, she was in Mexico on an anthropological assignment. Carl came to visit her, and she was shocked by how rude he was to her Mexican colleagues. Oh, no. She described his behavior as, quote, acting like a prince disdainful of the serfs. She found his behavior absolutely upsetting, as well as a stark contradiction from the ideals that he espoused. His politics and ideologies were quite liberal, but his personal behavior was obviously in direct opposition to his professed beliefs. Yeah, you can't go and be a jerk to people, man. Especially because they're Mexican, right? Like, these are scientists. These are research scientists working with his soon-to-be wife. Like, anyway. Hi, I'm Carl. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Yeah, where's a great place to get tacos? <laughs> I'd love an empanada. Tell me about your local margarita specialties. Right? His biographer, Kay Davidson, wrote... Young Sagan's liberalism, while sincere, had an abstract aspect. It was the clever, witty, after-dinner speaker liberalism of Adlai Stevenson, not the passionate, heart-wrenching, take-to-the-streets liberalism of Martin Luther King Jr. Like so many aloof intellectuals, the young Sagan seemed to think in terms of, and this is uppercase, people, rather than lowercase, people, of humanity rather than humans. Well, he sounds like a real jerk. Yeah. Whatever the cause, his behavior bothered Lynn enough that she broke up with I him. I bet. Mm -hmm. Good on you, Lynn. But Carl was determined to win her back, and oh, no. um, eventually he did so. Soon enough, they're talking about getting hitched. Sure they are. Mm -hmm. One major hurdle for Lynn, and this will surprise you, was Carl's relationship with his mother. Oh, tell me more. Oh, yeah. Lynn felt that he was way too dependent on Rachel, and she was not sure that he was suitable for marriage. Oh, uh, do you think? Mm. Once, when Carl was taking Lynn home to meet Rachel, they drove all the way from Chicago, where they were at college, to New York, where Rachel lived. For Lynn to decide that she should get out of the car a few blocks away from the house so that Rachel would not see her. What? When she did finally meet Rachel, Lynn realized that her fears were perfectly well-founded. Quote, she was a witch, the worst person you'd ever seen. She was so smart, and she had only her smartness to defend herself. She had all this incredible intelligence for nothing else. So as an example of Rachel's mean streaks, Lynn recalls, I have a sister who's very charming and very overweight. And Rachel would say, this is typical of Rachel, Oh, Diane, you're such a beautiful girl. It's such a shame you're so fat. Ah. Uh. So as Lynn 
begins seeing Carl interacting with his father, she was concerned that Carl actually didn't love or respect his father enough. Well, who ever gave Carl a minute to get anywhere else in the world besides Rachel? Like, Rachel, 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 Carl, Carl, Carl. It doesn't seem like there was ever a chance to bond with Dad. Yeah, and this really, really upset Lynn that he seemed to lack this affection and respect that she felt a son should have for his father. But she suspected that this was because that he did not love his father because his father was poorly educated and was not as smart as both Carl and his mother, Rachel. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so she immediately and this will bear itself out, began to worry that Carl would be the kind of father who wouldn't love their children if they weren't smart enough, which is icky. Um, She says, I actually made a tape recording about why I should marry him. My father could never stand him, but my biggest passion in life was to get out of the south side of Chicago. Back in the 1950s, you did not go with a man or live with him or sleep with him in some public way, and you certainly did not leave the south side of Chicago and go west because he got a fellowship unless he married you first. I mean, that's unfortunate, but true, yes. In addition to her other doubts about Carl, Lynn said that he had a tendency to belittle her as well. Oh, God, Lynn. Yes, this bothered her enough to break up with him several times, you know, until she married him at the age of 19. But Don't do it, Lynn. Don't do it. She did it. As she has said, he was handsome, attractive, very educated, very interested in what he was doing. He was clearly on a way to making a living. He was Jewish. Everything your mother would want. But her father hated him. I guess on paper, he was everything your mother would want. In practice, this is all going to go terribly. So Lynn married Carl. And when Carl informed his mother that he and Lynn were getting married, Rachel burst into tears and proceeded to cry for 12 hours in her room and yelled that Lynn wasn't good enough for her son. No. I know. Shocking that. There's literally no one that Carl Sagan could have brought home at that age that Rachel would have been okay with. Absolutely not. Carl and Lynn married in Chicago on June 16th, 1957. And... For the first part of their marriage, they kind of moved from one observatory to another while Carl was finishing his PhD and taking assignments and all that stuff. In March of 1959, their first child, Dorian Solomon Sagan, was born. The birth had a big impact on Carl, and he wrote that it made him more aware than ever of being a transitional creature caught between... The primeval mud and the stars. This guy is so self-important. The awe that Carl Sagan felt at the birth of his son and his son's dainty existence in his arms, that only lasted until he realized that he was now no longer Lynn's first priority in life. Oh, no. Carl began to resent Dorian, but also, according to Lynn and other friends, absolutely refused to help out with any household chores or parenting tasks in order to free up some of her time. Because that is not what men do. That is what women do. Lynn, of course, was also trying to make her mark in the scientific world, and she was growing increasingly angry about Carl's self-centeredness. Like, I don't know how else to put it. Just absolute disdain for anything not Carl. She says that he considered himself too good for domestic chores, which left her to do everything. She realized that none of her needs were being met and that her career ambitions and goals were absolutely unimportant to him. Like, 
that intelligence that initially drew him to her just like didn't matter anymore. Oh, I'm not a fan, Carl. Nope, nope. nope. Well, they did have a second son, Jeremy, in 1960. And this, of course, caused additional stress in the marriage because Carl became very sullen when his wife had even less time to dote on him because what he wanted was his mother. In the meantime, his career and opportunities were growing at a quick pace. In 1961, he published an article about the possibility of life on Jupiter based on a recent study he had done at the University of California, Berkeley. This was followed in quick succession by papers he wrote for the National Academy of Sciences about the possibility of life on Venus and what he called parabiology. In 1961, of course, JFK became president and declared that outer space was the new frontier. Carl got involved in this crusade. As a left-leaning space activist, Carl promoted the idea that exploring space could help us solve problems on Earth. The young family had moved to a beautiful home overlooking the San Francisco Bay. His friend Ronald Bloom, who had transferred to a doctoral program at Stanford, came to visit them and recalled, They had this gorgeous view of the Golden Gate Bridge. I wondered how could these people afford this place. I had the impression that Carl thought he should never deny himself anything. Another observation that Blum made during his visit was, quote, how totally Lynn seemed to accept her role as wife and mother. Everything was about Carl and Carl's career. Carl expected everything to be done for him. The Cold War was, of course, raging, and NASA was desperate to achieve any sort of first, any kind of victory to notch on their belt. And for some reason, they turned their eyes toward Venus. Carl was the go-to Venus guy for NASA. He proposed that humans... This is so crazy. He proposed that humans could make Venus habitable through a process he called terraforming. Like, the principle, cool, but apparently the surface of Venus is literal beds of lava. Sure. Like, they used to think that every so often the surface of Venus would just melt because it doesn't have plate tectonics and the heat would just build up. There appears to be some sort of surface motion that has been found recently, but... The idea that you're going to terraform Venus into a habitable world for humans in any kind of time frame, wow. Seems unlikely. He wanted to make the climate conducive to human life. Good luck, man. So he suggested seeding the upper atmosphere of Venus with microorganisms from Earth, ultimately weakening the greenhouse effect and cooling Venus enough to sustain life. Wow. I realize that this was much earlier in space exploration. Uh, He called this project Microbiological Planetary Engineering. And the idea made the New York Times in March of 1961, and it kind of took off from there. So this developed his prominence, and as his, you know, status in science world rose, so did his arrogance. And it was not just Lynn who was affected by that. It would be years before he would acknowledge how many colleagues he offended during this period. But for the time being, he was so focused on himself and his career that he didn't notice, or didn't care, let's be honest. Despite him being oblivious, perhaps, to his own behavior, Lynn had had enough. Finally, Lynn. Yeah, right. Although he'd pretty much been a jerk and not great to her since their first child was born, there were some final things that brought her to the end of her rope. According to her, he questioned the paternity of their second son, which was preposterous because Jeremy looked a great deal like his father. 
And even worse, Lynn claims that he hit her a few times. She said, quote, he did it out of his own total frustration, emotional ambivalence and frustration and lack of control and stuff like that. It was bad. So in late 1962, Lynn took their boys, who were three and a half and two years old at the time, and filed for divorce. Carl was super upset about the prospect of getting divorced and attempted once again to win Lynn back, but she put her foot down and that was that. Friends and colleagues during this time recall him being distraught about the divorce. Despite his seeming lack of interest in creating a healthy marriage, I guess Lynn was just supposed to do that for you too, bud. After the divorce, Lynn would go on, again, single mom raising two kids. She finished her PhD and went on to an illustrious career in science. She pushed ideas that were incredibly controversial, and she took withering criticism for years until they were ultimately validated. I mean, just a brave, brave person. One of her many accomplishments was that she was awarded the National Medal of Science by President Clinton in 1999. She's one of very few women to ever receive that medal. It's the nation's highest scientific honor given to individuals, quote, deserving of special recognition by reason of their outstanding contributions to knowledge in the physical, biological, mathematical, or engineering sciences. Years later, Carl would blame the divorce on his working fitfully on the Mariner 2 project. I was so distracted. Uh-huh. The it space like probe you've been distracted since 1951. Right, brother. yeah. So this is the space probe that was sent to Venus. Mariner 2 became the first successful mission to another planet when it flew by Venus on December 14th, 1962, by which point Lynn was off doing her own thing. Good on you, Lynn. Yeah, Carl Sagan, he seems fun. Right? (laughs) Yeah, I'm tempted to give him some trash cans just for this one marriage. Because, of course, his ex-wife went on to complete her PhD and become a hugely influential biologist in her own right. But I think I'll hold off because there is a lot more trashy behavior to come in part two this weekend. Makes sense. Thank you for part one there, Stacey. And thanks to you, trash pandas, you darlings, for... All of your emails, your ratings, your kind reviews for telling your fellow podcast enthusiasts about us. We're going to be back on Sunday for part two of this story. But if you need a little bit more trash candy between now and then, definitely check us out at patreon.com slash trashy divorces or tune into our newest podcast, Trashy Royals, where we've gone through most of the Romanovs in Russia and are now circling back to the Victoria era in England. That drops every Thursday for you, friends. Until we meet again, friends, keep your hands clean. Uh, Keep those hearts trashy. Big love, everybody. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces.
Jones. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there, and thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.